0: and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visebview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot, also all one word.com. And procure a copy of that book amount of the works at the farm's official store, which is at eFarm Podcast. That is the farm podcast, all one word dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is a California-based musician, psychotherapist, and the co-creator of Music-Centered Psychedelic Integration, a new way of working with psychedelic experiences that uses more music at all phases of the psychedelic treatment. Matt is also a long has also has a long-standing interest in many of my favorite subjects, such as entheogens, the supernatural, occultism, and, of course, rock and roll. Presently, he's involved in providing private practice, psychedelic therapy, and co-owns a ketamine clinic. Few can boast such an interesting day job. So, folks, I give you guys Matt Baldwin. Matt, thank you so much for dropping back this evening, sir.
1: Thank you for having me, Recluse. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Absolutely. So, as I'm sure many of you are wondering, what is it like running a ketamine clinic and doing ketamine therapy professionally? I know I am. And we're going to get to that but to set the stage we need to unpack a bit of matt's synchro mystical life i assure you there are some good stories and in they're involving gray alien-like entities magic precognition, telepathy and inevitably rock and roll so on that note let us start the show <music> Let's start semi-grounded here. When did you first become interested in performing music, and what were some of your inspirations?
1: Well, I started uh, singing in the church choir, Episcopalian church choir, when I was six, and my grandmother would take me to do that. She also gave me uh, piano lessons, and that was with the Suzuki Method, which I ended up you know, feeling really grateful for, because it was all about learning by ear, and that kind of Became the basis for uh, these these zines that I put out uh, called How to Play Guitar. It's a whole series of zines, basically on um, my philosophy of being a self-taught musician. So um, when I was eleven, I started playing guitar. I, I, I uh, transferred to a different school and fell in with a bunch of like very artistic and creative people, and uh, from and so I started playing guitar to you know to be like my friends. And, um, you know, was into really, you know, immediately into like punk stuff. And uh, when I was 13, I found John Fahey's music and that just completely reoriented me to reality. It was one of those moments where you hear a song and it just changes your life. So um, I got really into that. And ever since then, I've been kind of in this long, uh, long unfolding process of trying to fuse together different types of music to, to fuse together uh, different obsessions of mine. So that would be you know, like the music of John Fahey with uh you know electric stuff like the you know the, the the guitar work of someone like Lee Stevens from Blue Cheer, um Eddie Hazel from Funkadelic, stuff like Maggot Brain, Sonny Chirac, and then uh, you know, um uh, you know, tons of other influences folded in um you know krout rock uh minimalism arty punk stuff like that so it's been a long slow process i've been playing guitar for 30 years now putting out weird guitar records and um you know i do feel like uh you know i just turned 41 and and i feel like it's something is crystallizing inside of me that that feels like um there's this sort of uh story in uh, rock and roll that it's kind of like it's done by the time you're 27 or 30 and that doesn't seem to be true to me at all it seems like if anything uh Carl Jung's uh uh saying that, that life begins at 40 really seems to be true for me so um I feel like I'm more inspired and more productive than I've ever been.
0: It's kind of funny. I feel much the same way. I just uh, turned forty here this uh, past December, and yeah, kind of the whole period—you know, a couple of years leading up to it as well—it uh, kind of feels like things are finally sort of working out the way that they were always meant to for me. So I can uh, definitely emphasize where you're coming from there. Um, yeah, I had definitely thought I had picked up on a uh, distinct Rock influence. Gosh, I'm insisting. for sure, for sure the oh it was the guitarist I think he was an Ashra tempo um music. Manuel,
1: Manuel got yeah.
0: yes 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 no definitely your stuff reminded me quite a bit of his work because I mean he did so much uh you know just instrumental stuff with just him playing the guitar I mean it's really quite amazing with all the effects and what have you that he would uh incorporate to fill up the spaces and so forth
1: yeah, and also, I mean, this is something that was true for me from early on: is that anywhere I could find music where the instrumental stuff got expanded and the lyrics were shrunk down to the point where they, you know, almost disappeared, I, I was really into. So when you find something like Krautrock, something like Noi or Rodelius or uh, Cluster, Ashra, Ashra Temple, um, you know, Can, maybe not always with Can, but <clears throat> um, you know, it's like there's a real emphasis on on the music itself, and uh, I mean, I know this is a controversial thing. It's What Brian Eno said is that <laughs> um, lyrics are tricks to get you to listen to music, and that, for me, is really true. I know that you know not everyone's going to agree with me on that, but um, yeah, the krautrock, the krautrock thing. When I discovered it, uh, it felt like a kind of a homecoming, coming coming home to something that that um, that felt deeply familiar although i was discovering it for the first time right right then and there
0: no i totally agree and i i feel the same way about lyrics too i've um i mean there's certain bands um clutch for instance would be one that comes immediately to my mind where you just you couldn't even really imagine them without neil fallon's lyrics i mean they're just fantastic but i yeah more often than not i feel like a lot of times lyrics almost will kind of get in the way sometimes um yeah, cough, yeah. Cough, red hot chili peppers cough cough um
1: <laughs>
0: but uh right. yeah, i i've um i definitely especially as i've gotten older too i've really gotten more into instrumental stuff and that's uh i think one of the reasons why too i was kind of drawn to crowd rock myself in the last couple of years and you're a lot more like electronica and what have you as well Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. now one thing you said to me Stephen, in an email a while ago was that you like the band chrome and i feel like certain bands if you like them it it it, it kind of like tacitly makes you a member of this club you know and 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 so there's a chrome club which is certain people who are into that band how did you get into chrome because uh i lived in san francisco so i i you know i met and uh helios create and other people like that and new people in that milieu um but i'm always interested when you know i feel like another band that's like that is coil um yeah but yeah. Uh, how, how did you discover chrome i, I wanted to ask you that.
0: i think it was just kind of randomly searching on the internet for like acid punk because uh-huh. um, i was a really big fan of butthole surfers well, i'm still okay. a big fan i've been a big fan you know since i was uh a t- you know maybe even a preteen. I mean I think okay. one of my big formative moments was getting what was an independent worm salon hearing Jesus built my um hot rod by right, right. Three. but anyway so I'm looking for bands you know like butthole surfers and I had remembered that Halo's Creed was I think actually he played on independent worm salon a few tracks or something like that and I think he might have uh, uh Gibby what's his uh, what is the guitarist for a uh, butthole Surfer, Gibby Haynes? Gibby Haynes yeah I, I love him he's one of my all-time favorite guitarists so that was kind of another thing i was really hoping to find guitarists in the similar vein as him so yeah as soon as i uh i heard chrome the first time i just fell in love and then i love halo's creed <laughs> solo stuff as well so uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah that was definitely uh right down my alley and um I think that's you know another reason too why I, I found Kraut Rock to be so fascinating because it's I feel like it's so overlooked, even though yes. in my mind it's such a crucial bridge between the kind of psychedelic experimentation of the 60s, some of the early, you know, kind of hard rock and heavy metal on the one hand. Uh-huh. Then also post-punk, I mean, I really, I kind of feel like it's a bit of an oxymoron because I feel like Rock really was the OG post-punk and kind of, you know, predated punk rock. But I mean, you can even see that sort of punk spirit as well. But I mean, especially when you look at, um, you know, like David Bowie, who's sort of considered like the, uh, the godfather, grandfather, whatever, post-punk. I mean, uh-huh. I, I feel like so much of that sound really came from his experiences in germany and berlin and kind right, of you, right. know, uh, you know i mean all the crowd rock at the time same thing with iggy pops like early solo stuff so yeah it's, it's such a major i think component in that you know kind of transformation from the uh the psychedelic era into sort of the punk rock era post-punk era
1: yeah you know there's something about crowd rock that i always say which is that what they do is they take the intros of songs and they just prolong them so that the, the the length of an entire record. So you have this thing that feels kind of swirling and mysteriously slowly unfolding. And it doesn't necessarily like, it's not like the drums kick in and then someone starts, you know, uh, like wailing on a lead. It, it, it like it continues to stay in this sort of liminal sort of in between place where it it's like, it, it, it's, you know, they, they sort of keep it in that intro space, which I think is a, a really unique thing about krautrock. You know, it's like, and it's, I always wanted, you know, I, I remember that as a kid, like listening to, oh, well, there's some song, I think it's by KC and the Sunshine Band. And it's like, it's just some kind of ultimately some kind of whack, sort of white funk number. But um, the intro is really cool. There's this sort of sped up guitar with these delays and this sense of space. And I loved that. And and when I found Krautrock, I was like, oh, these are the guys who who um who who have the the sort of the the, the sense to sort of zero in on that and, and and expand it into an entire thing. And and you know, now ambient music is becoming so popular. on part of a scene here in LA that that is really, you know, it's like feels like a big groundswell of interest in that. So I think that they were super ahead of the curve on that. Um one other thing I was thinking about was uh, uh, you know, I lived in San Francisco for a long time. And for a while I lived next to the 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 legendary punk publisher V Vale, who published Search and Destroy magazine back in the day, that really I think sort of built out the 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 intellectual um underpinnings of punk rock. So it brought in, you know, uh the thinking of William Burroughs and J.G. Ballard and connected it to the surrealists and the situationists. And um uh, I hung out with V. Bale a number of times. I'd go over to his house for tea and we'd talk about books and philosophy and music. And And he talked about Chrome. You know, he was a, I mean, a real fearless explorer of um, non-standard ways of living and existing. And, you know, you can see that in all of his publications. But when it came to Chrome, I asked him, I said, what about Chrome? And he said, and he he's, he got very grave and serious. And he said, you know, Matt, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared of those guys. He's like, and I wouldn't you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, Helios Creed famously had this um, school bus parked on the panhandle of the Golden Gate Park. He said, like, and people would go visit him. He's like, but I wouldn't, because he, I felt like the darkness was very real with them. So I think when you feel that kind of edgy sci-fi darkness in um, the Chrome recordings, which feels very, I mean, it's very palpable, right? And, you know, he, uh, Damon Edge, the the singer famously uh, went insane and, and ended up dying uh um he, he was saying that, that, the, that the darkness wasn't just empty signification it like that this it was very real for them and, and so uh you know it was a little glimpse because i i got to meet helios creed maybe in 2004 2005 and it was at a show so i didn't really get to talk to him all that much other than shake his hand and tell him that i, I liked what he did but um there was a little glimpse behind the curtain to, to meet someone who knew them and said yeah they were um There was, and I I know I didn't go fully into it, but why he was afraid of them. But he said he was afraid of of Chrome as a band, not not afraid of other punk bands.
0: No, I can definitely see that because there's something just really otherworldly about their music. Uh, It's hard to describe, but um. I mean, I do find the oh, was it the one EP? No humans allowed. Kind of an app title. Uh, I mean, almost yes. the atmosphere that's evoked in there. I mean, it almost does seem like at times that it's not even like a uh, a, a band that's uh, really uh, driven by human inclinations or something to that effect. I don't know. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But um, it's. Right you know so many bands try to kind of capture like this science fictiony uh, atmosphere but with chrome i mean it really does almost at times sound like music that would have been made by aliens and i can only imagine what it would have been, would have been like hearing that like in the late 70s early
1: 80s yeah and, and for me i always connected it to the writing of philip k dick because it's the science yeah, fiction yeah. Where, where everything is broken everything is somehow fragmented and fractured and people are broken technology is broken the, the sense of the divine is broken uh but but all those things are still somehow in play um I really got that from their music did, did you so Stephen one other thing I wanted to ask you that so there, so you so you remember the the chrome club do you like coil too that's another club band
0: I'm not like crazy about coil but I mean I do appreciate them um I don't know that's that's kind of a band uh i think the darkness is maybe a little too much for me to like totally embrace it but i mean i do appreciate coil though i would definitely say that
1: i feel like from a magical perspective they're super important yeah i had a friend friend who essentially bullied me into becoming a coil fan he he you know i'd go over to his house and he would put on coil again and again and i was like oh god this feels like sex dungeon music like why are you playing this for me and then he played me, I'll send you a link to this after the show, but uh, he sent me a link to a, an album of theirs called Astral Disaster. And there's an, a, a song on there called The Mothership and the Fatherland. And that is one of the most profound, I mean, we're talking about, you know, I assume we'll get to at some point, psychedelic journeying and psychedelic, uh, you know, musically supported psychedelic experiences. That is one of the most powerful pieces of journey music I've ever heard. and And it has a sort of a, shamanic drumming in it and um so so uh i think it's a good entry point you know i because i i think uh for a long time i had a lot of hesitation on them too but i connect them in my mind with chrome even though they were from completely different scenes and ultimately at different times too
0: no i can definitely see that and um well oh gosh what is the guy's name peter christiansen christopherson.
1: Christopherson. Yeah.
0: christopherson yeah 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 so i mean he did though kind of come out of that same era with like throbbing gross. i mean obviously that would yeah. have been in the uk but i mean it was i can't kind of see that connection loosely because i mean it was that sort of late 70s and um yeah it does sort of invoke that similar otherworldly atmosphere i i am a you know a big fan of um what is it music to play in the dark I think is what the album oh it's a great
1: one it's a great one yeah I mean
0: you know I do like I said I do appreciate coil a lot I mean I'm I'm definitely like in awe of the power of their music it's just it's too much a lot of times for me to take to be perfectly honest
1: and you do meet certain people who are into coil who are very creepy people too like so
0: to the yeah that's kind of the other thing with industrial i just i i you know again i find the whole music to be unsettling on a lot of levels yes. that's also partly because of a, a lot of the crowd around it in some cases
1: yes exactly exactly i mean and, and i sort of really waded into those waters very slowly my background is like in american folk music and you know, like Mississippi John Hurt and John Fahey and stuff like that. So, it was a long process of, of getting initiated into those uh, weirder musical mysteries. But, uh, but um, I, th- I thought I'd ask just just because I know that you're a kind of a musical psychonaut too. So, um, I think I think one other connection that I think of with those bands is that they're, you know, one thing I love about industrial music, the early stuff, you know, um, was that you there were certain bands where it would just be like someone would be like. Uh, Oh, I just have two tape machines. That's all I play, you know, and there's something about that. I think it really connects to Burroughs work of, you know, the the pre-recorded, his idea of the pre-recorded universe and being able to hex people with sound and and to be able to sort of, you know, uh, warp and bend reality with uh, recording devices.
0: Well, yeah, didn't Chrome actually use the, the kind of a version of the cut-up method that was inspired partly by Burroughs with some of the early albums, if I'm not mistaken? Because I'm i pretty sure, um, you know, they had recorded that and then they had just kind of gone back and like re-edited everything just kind of like randomly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the, um, you know, I mean, like the first two or three albums, I think, are so like unsettling in some senses because uh, there is that just sort of randomness how everything just comes together like that
1: (laughs) yes it certainly sounds like it and i think that that really gets that that feeling like you said of like no humans allowed or if there are humans allowed they're going to be dropped into a kind of psychic blender
0: yeah yeah i mean it's almost like it's not even rationally assembled the way like the human mind would or something
1: (laughs) right right yeah Um, and i I always wonder with damon edge's eventual madness if 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 you know i think sometimes when when someone does eventually become chronically uh you know psychotic uh there are there are sort of like signs that it was coming and i i I often wonder that with trump's music if if um if it could uh you know if 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 somehow you can squint into it and see something like that it feels like you can you
0: know yeah no i could definitely see that Oh, so on the topic of folk, oh, uh, you're into acid folk. I was kind of thinking of like maybe something like Comus. That's like another one where there's sort of like
1: the club to that too. That's a real, that's another club record, right? Um, yes, I know about Comus. I never, you know, I, you know, there's certain records that, you know, I, I worked in record stores for a long time, like when I was in college and for a while afterwards. And there's certain records that inspire like incredible fanatical devotion. And that was one of them. I always liked that record and I thought it was interesting. Um, but I, I knew people who were absolutely just, you know, uh, obsessed with it. Um, so I, I I, liked it as a kind of a curiosity, but it just wasn't the sort of the feeling that I was looking for. And with the British Isles stuff, I was more into, or I am more into, excuse me, uh, Bridget St. John, Bert Janne, Nick Drake, um, John Martin, and, uh, uh, and, and Breaks, stuff like that. So I guess it was, you know, kind of that stuff has a psychedelic tinge to it but it's still essentially pretty traditional you know um so I, I love that stuff and there was a real emphasis on like beautiful complex guitar playing so um but but i think uh you know acid plus traditional music typically gets pretty interesting
0: yeah no i've always had a soft spot for that um oh uh, have you ever heard uh um, matthew Fry? no i haven't how do i spell that uh just FRY I believe Fry, but yeah yeah no he had uh definitely one of my favorite acid folk albums too it was kind of like a one-off uh but yeah very uh interesting record certainly
1: did did you have any time working record stores uh
0: no I did not uh unfortunately
1: you talk you talk like a former record store employee there's a certain uh sort of like breadth of knowledge so I was wondering if you if you ever did that but there's other ways to achieve that
0: yeah just i really big music fan and I you know hung out with a lot of bands throughout the course of my life I was I always wanted to be a musician but I have no sense of rhythm so that kind of uh ended that but um you know I've always enjoyed very much musicians as friends uh the whole just sort of atmosphere being around bands and what have you so Um, but, yeah, no, I we had kind of a gnarly record store, too, in uh, Daytona Beach, Atlantic Sounds. That might have been the kind of place I would have potentially pursued a job at if it was a little closer to where um, my folks' house was when I was a teenager. But, um, um, yeah, I could definitely have seen myself pl- uh, working in a record store back in the day. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I I, 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 you know. Uh, I, I called out my the most important part of my education is, is just having been working uh, you know like just with a pricing gun pricing records and being like what's this what's this what's this and that was an incredible way to learn about music it was just to kind of like you know it was just to handle two thousand records over the course of the day and then you know to be able to borrow them and listen to them while you worked yeah well that was you know that was kind of
0: the other cool thing about Atlantic sounds because it had such a great um of course I grew up in the 90s so it was like the CD era but um yeah, yeah. It had such a great selection of uh used CDs there so I mean I would and they had the you know really good deals on it too I think that was like you know a five for um like 15 or something yeah. like that so anyway, I mean, you know, I would I would just go in there and sometimes like randomly pick out just a lot of stuff uh, because the cover looked kind of interesting or something like that. And to this day, I mean, I, I still like doing that, you know, just kind of going into a record store and I'll try to just maybe buy one or two used ones that um I have no idea what it's going to be, you know. But I mean, a lot of times that's how you find some really cool stuff. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that this is another um, I mean you see this in the writing of Arthur Mackin uh, you know strange tales kind of stuff and uh, to, to, to Burroughs on through to Genesis Peorage, and um, you know uh, at this to this point that it's uh, you know it's totally ubiquitous which is the the importance of chance operations right and the importance of opening up to the unknown and and then just letting all of these strange convergences happen I mean this is why, I, I'm really bored by algorithms on streaming streaming services is that they can never take you on the sort of twist and twisting and turning journeys that uh, browsing through a record store uh, could or uh, a musical friendship or someone's like oh you know you're listening to this you know um, you know uh, like you're listening to Black Sabbath and then you're listening to a Fellini soundtrack by Nino Rota and then you're listening to, uh, you know, I mean, J.J. Kale. You know, it's like I mean, it, it, the, the sort of the, t- the twists and turns of it. So, um, and uh, yeah, I feel like that kind of picking up re- records at random, going through the dollar bin, uh, and just being curious. That, that's that's really important. And 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 I don't think, I don't think the kids today are getting that. I'm afraid, you know. Um, but although you know, I was at a thrift store the other day here in in Pasadena, and I saw some young kids going through the CDs in the way that me and my friends would go through the records. And I was like, Oh, maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, I think that impulse is there to be curious and to be curious about specifically physical formats, because that's a whole different experience from streaming music.
0: Yeah, no, I've, um, you know, and on top of that, I mean, I've had some just fantastically synchronistic experiences with that too. In fact, just recently, I mean, I was uh, kind of thinking about that because I was, um, Oh gosh, yeah, I was at a record store in Arden, uh, Delaware, which is a pretty gnarly place to begin with closely connected to Rose Valley and uh, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. you know it's um it was kind of set up with the same uh people involved in the arts and crafts community mm-hmm. uh, at the turn of the last century but anyway you know it's you know a very interesting little town there they've got this great uh record store there and I'm going through that and I found this you know again just sort of in the years been this record called uh by a band called pearls before swine uh which I got uh, because it had some sort of a cult-y, uh, you know artwork and what have you and it was you know sort of an acid folk thing which it said I'm really into so I got home played it absolutely love the thing and yeah. um a couple of uh weeks later actually I think it was maybe a month or two later I ended up uh interviewing Timothy Renner hmm. strange familiars and also Stone Breath uh the band that he does and found yeah. out that he actually uh was heavily influenced by pearls before swine he actually uh the main guy in it uh, as well that was one of his sort of inspirations for his own kind of take on acid folk and and child ballads and that kind of stuff so I thought that was really gnarly you know I had just sort of randomly bought this record and then a couple of months ago I'm um, interviewing a guy who uh actually knew the main uh, songwriter in it and I mean whose career was really inspired by the band so I mean you know it's kind of you know those are the sort of experiences you get when you actually go into the stores and just kind of embrace the random like that you know
1: yes yes right right um i think i know the record you're talking about and i, uh, I flip past it like a million times which is uh it's is it does it have the sort of the that disturbing close-up on a hieronymus bosch image i think it is
0: uh I they I do believe that they have one like that I'm not sure if that was the okay. one that I got they had like two or three but yeah 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 I believe that that's one of the ones that you're thinking right
1: about. but but this has a kind of a chaos magic feel of like everything connects to everything else you know like like mm-hmm. you don't just you don't just find a record like that and and have it not lead to something significant
0: yeah absolutely right um, oh one other question I had on music sure. here. uh Grail Marcus did you ever read any of his work
1: you know, I, I I put down in in one of the zines that I put out, one of the how to play guitar zines, um, a quote which was, you know, when you self release a record, you know, make up a quote by Griel Marcus um, and put it on the front of your record. And 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 I said that I, I had a girlfriend at one time who who loved that book, Lipstick Traces, and she gave me a copy, and I I lost it. So I've not read Grier Marcus, but I've a lot of people who I respect have told me to 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 read him, and that. Uh, You know something
0: about his connection to surrealists i think yeah lipstick traces but he did some really fantastic ones um i i was also a big fan of i think it was mystery train it was one of the earlier ones that he did okay uh, which got into more you know sort of the blues country origins of rock and roll but i mean he i felt like really clued me in on almost the magical kind of archetypes that okay are prevalent within rock and roll and American Blues and country and a lot of that kind of stuff um because he did I think take a very mystical take on a lot of this music I mean especially you know because he gets a lot into Elvis and uh-huh, the uh-huh. influences with that oh I think that was I think part of the reason why I'd even discovered mystery train in the first place is I was looking for some works on Robert Johnson um uh-huh, you know, again, uh-huh. you know so much of the uh the mythos around him and uh you know all that good stuff so yeah Marcus was I think really instrumental and in, um kind of shaping my view on music as being something more than music is sort of a uh, means of conveying these sort of mystical experiences these yes. types this you know sort of uh, entry point into the collective unconscious and, yes you know lipstick traces too is just fantastic with that it really got into dadaism and, uh, uh-huh, and uh-huh. Its later influences and surrealism so that was another i would say both of those books which i read when i think i was in high school were really um very influential in my thinking in terms of how i viewed the arts and certainly yeah. more so i think as i've gotten older
1: you know i'll, I'll have to i'll have to um I'll have to read that because I'm in the middle of writing this long essay. I think I'm going to p- publish it as another volume of the How to Play Guitar Zine series, and um, it's it's about how to look at how how one could look at music from an animistic framework, which is that it is a type of you know it's another aspect of the sort of the living universe, and and that it and that it maybe is something that can act as a portal to other places, and it can also act as a portal whereby other things things from other places can come into this reality and and that, and that it's also um, uh, perhaps has its own life uh, or, or it can be a sort of a, a fractal, you know, particle uh, of a much bigger whole that, that, that is in part the, the composer, the performer, the energy in the room where it was recorded. Um, So, so I, I've been slowly working on that and, uh, you know, using examples of, uh, the sort of the the sort of the haunted or occult roots of just recording technology itself which is you know like edison and those early talking disc machines they were all used to uh talk to i mean they are supposed to, supposed to be there so that you know you could either talk to the dead or make recordings of dead people and listen back to them i mean there's a famous sort of image of the the dog listening to the the victrola with his face in the horn of the victrola and i think that you know, according to legend, the original images had that Victrola sitting on top of a coffin, and his master's voice was the dog listening to his master's voice from beyond the grave. So there's a sort of a spirit contact thing there. Um, I also use as a as an example in that essay uh, Lee Scratch Perry, who who talked about the recording technology becoming its own living thing and sending your awareness down into the mixing board and out through the speakers and, you know, um, in order to inform what happens with the music so so i, I feel like Griel marcus maybe i shouldn't read it maybe it would influence me too much Or read it after i'm done because um, this is something that i've been in, in, intuitively unfolding on my own f- for a while now so, which is a, sort of a magical animistic take on this and, and really borrowing a lot from the creative occultists like kenneth grant you know th- this idea that magical energies are pouring into our existence from all angles of experience especially through art
0: Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, I know in uh, Mystery Train, one of the big uh, points of emphasis is really centered around like Sun Records with Sam Phillips. Uh, And, you know, again, it's just one of those things where it's so amazing in hindsight to look at that because, you know, at one point you have uh, Elvis Presley there, you have Carl Perkins, you have like uh, Johnny Cash, you know, I mean, just so many of these artists working at this little uh studio that uh, would just profoundly transform just american music American culture yeah yeah I mean, on a deep deep level so i mean yeah it does uh make you wonder you know like what exactly was it about that particular place and time in the history that almost made it this this nexus uh for a cultural transformation to such a profound level you know
1: Right. I mean, it sounds like. I mean, could you think of it as a kind of window window area? You know, where where more than just the sum of those people and their efforts uh, ended up sh- showing up somehow by some means. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, yeah. Because I think you're right. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, and the list just goes on and on. I mean, it's like Char- Charlie Feathers, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, it's just like the, these mu- incredible people. You know. Um, and uh yeah totally transformed the world as we know it i mean we wouldn't know the world if, if that hadn't we wouldn't recognize the world if, if that hadn't happened
0: well all right I, you uh, had alluded to this before but you've done this zine series called how to play guitar so can you get a bit into your uh, your teaching methods
1: yeah well that came it actually came from Vale, that punk publisher that i was mentioning in san francisco i one time I ordered some books from him and he sent me an email. He said, you know, Matt, I live just right down the street. So uh, you know, come come pick this stuff up at my house. And, you know, so I walked over to his house and he made me a cup of tea and we sat down and talked for a long time. And we talked a bunch about my music and what I try to accomplish with it and and you know, all of these records that I put out over the years. I think I put out maybe eight solo records at this point, and then I've done a bunch of collaborations too, and I've played in a bunch of bands too. Um and I, I I you know I'm I'm kind of I'm you know Gen, Gen X millennial cusper. So I um so I, I tend to want to have my art be kind of cryptic in that Gen X way, which is that like, you know, people should be able to sort of squint into it and see and, and see intuitively the deeper levels, right? But um, you know, Vale really pointed out to me that that that, that was somehow um there was a lack of generosity in that. And so I, and, and he said, you know, like you, you need to share your ideas with the world. And, um, you know, of course my records have never sold all that many because I make, you know, you know, relatively obscure sure. instrumental guitar records. And um, he said, I think, you know, if, if you make a zine and, and share your perspective, uh, he said, you will create hardcore fans. And that really stuck with me. The, the idea that I, that, that, Somehow, it would lead to more of a connection. Like if you had some kind of explanatory notes for what you're trying to achieve with the music, that it might open things up. So, during the pandemic, I started, you know, uh, just writing down ideas I had about playing guitar and ideas I had about composing and recording. And I, I didn't have, I didn't have some, you know, I, I'm, I'm a real student of the thinker Nassim Taleb, and, and he's really like uh, all about practitioners first. You know, that practitioners tend to tinker with things and to assemble approaches that are intuitive and they sort of do a lot of trial and error with little risks and that is how theory is made you know and i think that if you if you are a hardcore academic typically that model is upended and there's a sort of a belief that you start off this sort of um rarefied platonic theory and that you then that informs uh uh practice right so so i i think you know I've had these ideas banging around in my head for, for a long time. And I always knew that I was a self-taught guitar player and, and that I, I valued that. And I really clawed my way out of the darkness of not knowing anything about guitar to, towards being a, you know, a, a good guitar player. And um, so, but I didn't know how these ideas connected, you know, guitar and this sort of like um sort of a philosophy of uh, decision-making from uh, within the unknown. So as I started writing down the ideas, uh, it's. It became pretty clear that I that I had this philosophy, this ethos that I didn't even know that I had, and and it, and it really, you know, I think I think really what this has come down to, because the zines have been really successful. I've sold a bunch of them, and they've gotten a lot of attention, um, which is the first time I've had any real success with any project I've been involved in. And um, what it's led for me to do is to encourage other people to to work at self publishing. Um, and self, you know, self-publishing on a micro scale, because I think that many people have very sophisticated ideas, you know, that that they live by um, and that then that they have really won through uh, experience, but they don't know it until they write them down. And, and that's what happened for me. So what does the, the essence of the zines is that it's a philosophy of being self-taught and that being self-taught, um, that being self-taught can can lead you if if you take time with it, if you sit in the unknown, if you take risks, if you uh uh you know if you if you let it unfold, then it leads to a type of sophistication and mastery that is very unique, that can't be taught ultimately, because it's ultimate, you know, it's it's your voice, your sound. You know, I, I think uh you know whereas if you learn to play like segovia uh you know you're going to sound like segovia you know and and if you want to find your own voice you're going to have to do a lot of work to transcend you know that sort of technical and traditional encumbrance that 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 has been put onto you so um yeah so the zines are about ultimately i mean they 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 range over a lot of things but the the core has to do with um i I mean they've been called different things you know uh uh the the, he's a record label um owner matt keel in baton rouge he's putting on a record for my friend hans Dilgratz and i and he he called uh the how to play guitar series uh a creative anti-manual so it's a lot of it is kind of kind of based on what not to do or sort of defining things negatively um which you know theologians call Uh, creating apophatic knowledge so you know god is not this god is not that you know so it's this kind of process of elimination and i think that that's somehow reflects uh something that i arrived at through being a a self-taught guitar player um i mean i I call it an anarchist cookbook for the creative process so um yeah it's it's uh i've put out six volumes now the most recent volume is uh, not stuff that i wrote it's actually uh it's kind of like a, almost like a cipher or like a, a, a list of words that can be used to help create names. So I think I want all of the zines to be practical and helpful and to maybe um, help people to learn on their own. And I think that the theme, if I really boil it down, down to its essence, is how to have a fun and productive relationship with the unknown.
0: Well that's uh, certainly always the kind of relationship you would prefer to have with the own un, unknown
1: child. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Better better than some of the alternatives I guess.
0: Yeah. Yes, 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 you can um your relationship with the unknown can get rather hairy if you're not prepared in a certain sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: that note let's start getting a little weird then um so i gather you've had a variety of paranormal experiences some of which are oddly uh similar to my own so let's start with this preteen uh telekinetic experience you mentioned so what was that about
1: well you know um i, I think you know just to set the backdrop i, I was always a kid that had uh uh you know, I had really intense dreams and I had dreams that dealt with things that were, that felt like they were coming from a place bigger than my uh, biographical experience up to that point. So, you know, I, I felt like I was getting information sometimes and oftentimes it would be very cryptic, but, but it involved words and concepts that, that, you know, were not being shown to me in my waking life. So I think, uh, you know, this is sort of leads me to sort of like my magical perspective on things, which has to do with um, following the things that show up in your life. Uh, you know, I mean, I still investigate things and and follow certain other people's paths or, or investigate them. But but I, I also think that the, the, most, the most valuable contacts are ones that maybe come to you. So um, that experience you're talking about was, I think that was maybe when I was Twelve or thirteen, and I was emptying the dishwasher. Um, it was a chore, and I set—I was taking glasses out of the dishwasher and putting them up into a cabinet. And I set one down on the counter in front of me, and I looked at it, and I heard this sort of like cracking noise, like a. And I looked, and it had spiderwebbed the entire thing, like safety glass. And I looked at it, and then it exploded right in my face and it exploded as if it had like an M80 inside of it. So it exploded and threw glass all into my face, into my shirt. And then it threw it all the way across this living room, you know, and then pieces of it went all the way down a staircase and across an entire adjoining room. Uh and so I mean that's that was like maybe I want to say like 50 feet away. So it exploded with incredible force. And the first thing I did when I kind of like pulled my head back up was I put my hand into the dishwasher and I was thinking, okay, oh, these dishes must have been really hot and there must have been a bubble of air in one of them and they exploded. You know, I understood that concept at that age. And I reached in and touched the glasses and they were cool. Um, all of the dishes in the dishwasher were cool. So I, I had no idea, but it was one of these things. You know, I feel like with certain people they have experiences that kind of back them into this Realization that uh, we don't that, that materialism is wrong, and that the model of physics that's taught in high school and uh, you know sort of like conventional Newtonian physics is 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 maybe only partially true if it's true at all. Um, and that was the first sort of like that that was an early sort of crack in the egg of like wait so something here is happening. You know, and I think uh, you know poltergeist experiences. And I think about being a teenager. You know, it's like we talk about teenagers oftentimes touching off poltergeist experiences or you know their, their their emotional energies or their sort of like sexual awakening that they're going through um I think you know in in that sort of 40 research they they talk about it oftentimes being teenage girls but you know I was a teenage boy and I had this experience and I don't I I'm not sure if it was a poltergeist uh, or if it was I I don't know how to class the experience but it was you know t- totally b- bizarre and I couldn't make any sense of it and, and a lot of my spiritual outlook on the world as a place full of extra physical energies goes back to looking back on these childhood experiences and being like oh wait this thing happened and 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 i was never given a frame for why it would happen and and now in my adulthood I'm, i'm i've really done a lot of work to assemble a frame for how and why this stuff could be happening
0: yeah and i think you're absolutely right to at least in my own experiences about just kind of uh letting stuff come to you and following the things that uh you know randomly come into your life essentially because i do think that that's uh usually more of a sign that uh you're on to something of real value i mean i kind of feel like that's where a lot of people in the uh you know kind of spiritual but not religious community really lose the plot as i mean they're constantly trying to force things by following this or that um it's like you just got to kind of like let it happen i think in a lot of cases
1: yes and this is why creative occultism is so interesting to me is that it's like opening up to what is coming out of your unconscious right like i like i've been to you know uh you know, I, I've been to, I've watched <clears throat> ceremonies performed by different orders and stuff like that. And sometimes, on a bad day, they can feel so stale. I mean, like, like just somebody else's ideas, somebody else's words that you're going, people are going through by rote. There's not a lot of energy there. There's not a lot of personal investment. And so, I think that the, the, the personal thing, it, it's really. I mean, I know that some people, you know, uh, claim to, to 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 not have these experiences at all. But I think really, maybe it's about recognizing them when they happen because I think that if you're told you know this is some kind of you know uh like cognitive bias or something like that or some kind of like psychological mechanism if you're told something's impossible you're less likely to acknowledge that it's even a possibility and if it happens you you can just kind of your your brain can just kind of edit it out or, or sort of delete that experience and and um I certainly del- kind of deleted that experience for a while you know I think it was like what fort called a, uh, like a I think a damned fact or something like that um so there's been a, a a distinct return of the damned in 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 my life uh uh you know in the past 10-15 years
0: oh absolutely now it was kind of funny because i've uh you know again i've always been really uh, keen on synchronicity i feel like that's such a a big part when you cannot really recognize the sinks and especially the uh, natural ones as opposed to because I think sometimes I mean people try to force synchronicities as well yeah um but uh gosh you know I mean and conversely I never really uh cared about you know UFOs for instance whereas I once knew somebody who always longed to have like a UFO experience and uh conversely was very dismissive of synchronicity and um oh. Often would be very critical of my uh interpretations of that. And um it was kind of funny when I um finally I think I'd actually talked with Jeff Hall about this, but when I finally did see the UFO a couple of years ago out here by my cabin, uh-huh. it was probably the most underwhelming paranormal <laughs> experience, supernatural, whatever you want to call it that I've uh-huh. ever had. It was then, I mean, you know, it was, I mean, you know, I saw just the, you know, originally I just kind of thought it was a star and then now I'm like, oh, it's moving around really weird. And then it starts going around doing these like insane circles at like fast speeds and zipping back and forth. And then it just blinked out of existence and was gone. And I was just kind of like, eh, whatever.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because I mean,
0: just by that point, I'd already had so many other, just you know, things happen. I think really stuff that was much more significant on a personal level. And it just didn't really do much for me you
1: know right right it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the shattering glass of the first time you saw something like that happen it was it sounds like it just sort of maybe fit yeah, you know, into your role you.
0: i think that's maybe where i mean maybe some people make mistakes as they're expecting something like that and a lot of times it's kind of like the little stuff i think that can be a lot more meaningful in the long term it's uh what is it the old saying from uh small steps begin great journeys or something like that Uh huh. Uh huh.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I've noticed about synchronicities in my life is that they seem to have kind of seasons and that the seasons take years, you know, but maybe there's something that touches them off. For me, they often seem to, when I get these, the cascades of synchronicities that kind of feel, have that sort of chapel perilous feel to them. Um, the ones that kind of can be overwhelming and make you feel like you're kind of going crazy. Um, that they often correspond to times where I I'm in love with someone and that that love has a really intense sexual component uh, and then also or or if someone I deeply love is in the process of dying So I, I feel like you know I mean this reminds me I I'm not a big student of Whitley Sttrieber or Ann Sttrieber but but I did remember that one time Ann Strieber said this phenomenon, the UFO phenomena has something to do with what we call death. And I, and I, you know, I think about this experience that I had with the UFO that did have something to do with, uh, it did have something to do with death. You know, it it, it happened within when, when I was, when I, uh, when my life was within a kind of aura of death. Um, So there's something about that for me. And I, and I don't want to, you know, I don't know if that's how it works for other people, but, but like, it's like if someone begins to die who I really care about, then life gets really weird and then also if i'm falling in love with someone who i have sort of extraordinarily good chemistry with
0: yeah i could see that it's kind of uh when your life goes into sort of like a liminal state if you will
1: yeah yeah well yeah and 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 to think of it as these two kind of portals like there's the portal whereby Life enters into the world, you know, um, the sort of sexual connection. And then there's this portal whereby people leave the world, you know, the, the death experience. And so, but it seems to be that things come along with that, you know, maybe uh, energies, you know, uh, may, maybe this is what people talk about when they talk about angels uh, or, or demons or something like that. But, but it seems to be like, the, like there are attendants that come along with these experiences, at least for me, when these things happen. But but, yeah, but synchronicities, I think that really, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about psychedelics, but there's something about when this stuff happens and you can't point to a drug and say, oh, well, this, you know, I had this vision because of this, or, you know, these things lined up perfectly because, you know, because I was on this, uh, you know, substance. That for me, ultimately, spiritually is like more compelling because, you know, it, it really does feel like, you know, uh, uh these energies showing up in, in order to you know sh- showing up in order to change you and um you know not giving you any excuses not giving any, you any outs as to why this is happening it's it's more just like you have to actually reckon with this oh this thing happened and you know what do i make of that you know what do i make of a, of, of a night of missing time what do i make of extraordinary synchronicity experiences and um you know if you really reckon with that you know it's like then you are walking in a different world and you're a different person and i, I think you know this is something gordon white talks about the process of becoming invincible sort of realizing that there's something about uh, uh consciousness that seems to be indestructible and i think you know he, he talks about confirming that with high-dose psychedelic experiences and I, I think that but also i think this whole host of experiences this whole range of them in some way does point to uh even though they're oftentimes weird and kind of scary you know uh, it points to um, other worlds and, and other types of identification other than just like being in a physical body so i mean this reminds me of the the, the 1980 playboy interview with uh, stanley kubrick where he said that the shining is ultimately a very hopeful story because uh, there's an afterlife you know all the ghosts show that like life doesn't end when you die
2: mm-hmm.
0: yes 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 definitely well well, we're on the topic of synchronicities. I take it you've had some weird precognitive dreams uh, that occurred in conjunction with them. So, can you share a couple of those with us?
1: You know, I think, I think I just talked about those in a kind of abstract way, and I think I'm going to leave that that way because it's such a long, twisting thing, and it's so deeply personal that i I don't know if it would I don't know if it would translate to this format. Oh, um, okay. No well, well I'll, I'll say this. I mean, it, it involved, you know, it, you know, it, when this stuff happens to you and you have no frame of reference for it, you, you you can kind of feel like maybe you're the only person this has ever happened to. And and I think, you know, listening to shows like yours and and, and others like it, and and doing reading, all of a sudden you realize that this is just an experience that people have and that they've always had, you know, uh, for for a very long time. This is a this is just a, a human faculty. It's it's part of the human experience. Um, and so for me, the dreams involved, um, being put in very specific, the, 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 you know, finding myself in a very specific tableau and then in my life afterwards, um, walking into that exact same situation. And, and, and it, and it was oftentimes a, a very charged situation, um, but all the same elements there, like, uh, uh. So, so, so they were ultimately precognitive dreams, but they, the, but it was interesting because you know um, Gary Lockman talks about you know oftentimes precognitive dreams are you know kind of like insignificant precognitions, like it's like not that big of a deal. Like you'll you'll you kind of notice this small detail in a, in a dream, and then you'll encounter it out of the dream, you know, in the in the following days. In my experience, I had the combination of the dream being like what Carl Jung would call a big dream, you know. Um, being uh, archetypal, being charged with meaning, feeling like that meaning had multiple layers and and depth, and connected to hi- the you know sort of the whole history of human experience, and and then there was the precognitive development. So that was really for me, you know, Gary Lockman kind of wrote about them as a, you know this is something that happens. It has this is a real valid experience for people, but um, oftentimes they're just kind of like throwaways and they don't change people lives change people's lives um, in my experience, it completely changed my life and felt, you know, you know, just vibrating with meaning. Um, and, and, and I'll say that those experiences had to do with death and sex, um, or death and sexual love. So, um, yeah. And, and, but I think I'll, I think I'll pass on sharing the actual experiences because it's just, you know, too, 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 too many cryptic twists and turns and, and it would involve, uh, you know, sometimes I sometimes I feel like I'm really interested in synchronicities, but there's certain times when people share them that it can get a little bit tedious to me. So, um, uh, but but I you know have have you know I, I definitely identify as a synchronistic. You know, it's like that when I found out that term, I was like, oh yeah, like this is a way that it's a path to walk, and it's a way that the path is confirmed for you by having these experiences.
0: Totally. Well, something yeah. that. Uh really jumped out to me uh was an encounter you described with having a gray alien being when you were about 19 years old. I had a, a similar experience of seeing such an entity when I was around 20. I told the story before plenty of times, yeah. today, but suffice to say it had a profound influence on me. This was um actually the first time I had done mushrooms uh at the uh, dorms at the University of Colorado Colorado Springs and um I had gone into the cafeteria around midnight because they did this, you know, kind of midnight snack thing. For students, it was uh, really groovy, you know, you can get kind of like breakfast stuff. But um, anyway, I walk into the serving area and I mean, it's uh, like covered in smoke. And I see these uh, seven foot tall, eight foot tall, gray aliens walking around amongst the students you know kind of observing everything and uh it was definitely the most ex- intense hallucination I've ever had uh quote uh-huh. never had anything like that before or since but um yeah just to kind of see something directly like that but yeah right. it was, uh definitely something that had quite a uh profound influence on me so anyway, uh, I typically credit that with a lot of my interest in high weirdness. Um, so yeah, that's on your own.
1: Yeah. Um, so this I will share. Um, um, yeah, I had an experience. Well, I had a night of missing time when I was nineteen, and I was living with my grandmother, who was dying of liver cancer. I was, you know, looking out for her and and you know running errands for her, and really, it was this really sweet period where we got to spend time together. I was very close with her. We got to spend time together right at the end of her life. And so, you know, we hang out and, uh, you know, she would make us martinis. She, she didn't care that I wasn't 21 because, uh, you know, we would put on a Dean Martin record and hang out and, uh, drink vodka martinis. And, uh, we were just very close. And she was starting to die. And it was this, maybe the first time that this eerie energy crept into my life. But, uh, it culminated with a, a night that was just erased from my life and 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 I it was the weirdest feeling you know I, I remember waking up the next morning and uh, you know I hadn't I hadn't uh, had too much to drink I, I I don't know what time I went to bed because the night was wiped you know from my memory um I wasn't extraordinarily tired you know I mean and but, but it was as if the, the, the film was just removed from the movie of my life and just thrown away, um, which, you know, I, I've perturbed my consciousness in all kinds of ways. You know, I've gotten high on different types of, types of substances. I've de- deprived myself of sleep, you know, um, like I've had intense dream experiences, out-of-body lucid dreams, all this stuff. So uh, this was a totally different thing where it's just a blankness and a, and a missing, missingness. Uh, like this eerie uh, uh, emptiness and I, I woke up in the morning and I had burned up this tea kettle the night before that was the last thing I remember it was putting on a tea kettle and I came down and it had—it was a copper tea kettle with a wooden handle and it, it had collapsed in on itself copper had melted and the handle had burned up and my grandmother had left me this note you know Matthew exclamation point exclamation point underlined with all these jagged lines And I was thinking back, like, I remember putting the tea kettle on, but that was the last thing. And then it all went dark. And so I went ahead with my life because I just, I had no frame for it. I hadn't really heard of the missing time phenomenon. This was 2001, the year 2001. And, you know, this stuff, you you know, any type of stuff about high strangeness, you had to really seek out. And I hadn't really begun doing that. I was more just, at that point, an, an obsessive guitar player. So. I uh went on with my life and, and you know started doing psychotherapy and that led to me having really profound uh, lucid dream experiences and uh some out of body stuff and that I started thinking about well what's the frame to hold this within and that got me really interested in in occultism and ultimately magic and and so um and then and then through my own personal therapy I started getting interested in uh, getting back into psychedelics, which I had, you know, experimented with as a teenager. So, um, and that led into me deciding to go to grad school, become a therapist, all that. So this was kind of the, the, the background for uh, uh, where this is all headed, which is that I heard the, the writer, Mike Clelland talking on a podcast, talking about um, his book, The Visitors. Are the Visitors? I think it's The Visitors. It's the book about owls and UFOs and synchronicities and i just oh, by
0: Mike cleveland i think or something like that
1: yeah i think it's Clout, cleland yeah okay, okay yeah yeah um or the messengers that's what it's called not the visitors the messengers and um i just knew i needed to order a copy of that book and i did and i read it and he really talked about a lot of different anomalous experiences because this is his thing with owls and ufos and um he uh so I bought that, I read it, and then I realized that my therapist, you know, had done extensive work with uh, hypnosis. And so I came to her and I said, you know, I have this night of missing time and and I, have you done any work with this? I remember she was lighting a candle to, for us to do some hypnotic work. And she said, yeah, actually I have a lot of experience with, uh, um, you know, UFO contact, uh, you, you know, missing time, that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't know that. So as I worked with her, I found out that she didn't more and more stuff you know i uh, was interested in the stuff material did psychedelic work um, and had worked with contactees and so we did a bunch of preparation work you know kind of almost in the spirit of psychedelic work it's kind of like what do you you know wh- what do you want to get out of this what are your goals you know and then preparing me for how weird it could get and then eventually we did a, an extended session with an hour and a half of regression and that led to an experience of uh, remembering, but in kind of impressionistic terms, I'm going to be honest about that. It didn't have, um, it didn't have the kind of the clarity of, of a real, hardcore memory. It felt, it felt, dreamy and maybe almost kind of confabulated in a way, which was confusing until uh, the, this experience comp- completed itself. Um, of me being brought up from the room that I stayed in at that house with my grandmother, being brought up through the roof. Uh, into a craft, and then coming to on a metal table in a room, which was um, uh, David Lynch's the, the red room, the, the red room in uh, Twin Peaks, lined in red curtains, checkerboard floor, and lying there for a while. And as I lay there, I had sort of flashing images in my sort of right field of vision, and then my left field of vision. Uh, A gray alien face left, then flashing right, an empty mask, a a mask that you could see through the eyes and the mouth. And it was just sort of pulsing back and forth, gray alien mask, gray alien mask, again and again. And um, I I realized in that moment later on when I reflected on it that I was being given a key to the experience, and and I'll I'll explain what that was when when we get there. Um, but that happened. And then I decided to get up off of the table and to walk to the side of the room and to part the curtains and to look and see what was beyond them. And I, so I did this and it took me a while because there was some fear. And, and also something happened during this experience. I remember this with the hypnosis is that I've only experienced this uh, drinking ayahuasca, which is the certain type of crying that you do where you're not, you know, you're not convulsing. You're not making any sound. It's just that your eyes are just pouring water out of them and you're lying there maybe perfectly still. And this was happening to me during this experience. And every time I crossed a threshold during this experience, it would intensify. So like when I was brought up out of my bed, through the ceiling, you know, this water just pouring out of my eyes. And I, I remember the feeling of it as I lay there on the couch in the, the, the therapist's office. Um, and then, you know, when I decided to, get up and go part the curtains when I eventually did part the curtains another cascade of of water out of my eyes so as I was walking to the curtains um I suddenly appearing between me and them was one of those imperial guards from Star Wars you know what the hell do I make out of this all this imagery from pop culture is coming into this uh abduction experience you know so so it's the it's the the Imperial Guard, if you remember them from Star Wars, they have the kind of red cape that connects to a kind of a helmet that's continuous with like a shoulder, uh, sort of like a, a, sh- a shoulder uh, shoulder pads or like a. So it's this big helmet that they wear with sort of a black slit in it um, that they look through, and so this appeared holding a halberd, and I was thinking like, you know, it was obviously like some kind of sentry or guard, and I was thinking, uh, am I allowed to? Uh, just go past this? Is he going to hurt me? Is this okay? And eventually I just made up my mind to, um, to walk right past him, to walk around him. And I did and I parted the curtains and at that point I had this long, this, 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 sort of the perspective shifted outside of my body, out to the side, way out to the side and I was looking at my face in profile, looking out into this black void and hanging in front of me was a huge... Uh, and strangely wrinkled, uh, gray alien face with black eyes, eyes like polished obsidian mirrors, and I, and and also the head sort of was almost like it was on a tilt, with the sort of the chin uh, going back and forth, you know, sort of like as if it's almost like oscillating slightly, um, and I gazed into those eyes for a long time. And I wondered, like, what? I, I got this sense of, you know, it was trying to tell me something or show me something. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very allergic to hierarchies. And, and I, I think you get this in the How to Play Guitar scenes. I'm very allergic to teachers and to teacher-student relationships. I, I am pure autodidact, and I uh, really believe in that, especially for me and, and for certain other people. So. I don't use these words, but this, I I tend to shy away from this word, but the word the guru came into my mind. And um, I gazed into the eyes and then I realized that in this, I was almost like starting starting to feel like a lucid dream. And so I realized that I had a lot of options here in terms of what I wanted to do. And I decided that I wanted to project myself in through the eyes. And this is interesting because later on, I was going over some Typhonian order documents about working with the, the, the entity lamb, uh, Crowley's entity lamb, that, that he uh, you know drew the famous picture with the big head. Um, and they involve projecting your consciousness in through, through the eyes. So that was a strange synchronicity, which was I had this intuition that I needed to project my consciousness in through the black eyes of this being. And when I did that, I, I shot myself out of my body along the beam of my vision into the eyes of this being. And that began a total, uh, so 2001 Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, uh, you know, experience of being shot through this sort of highly colorful, charged landscape full of all these lights and moving at incredible distances in the direction. You know, uh, I, I just intuitively knew that I was headed towards the the, the star Sirius, and you know, traveling for. Quite a while, and then eventually arriving at this place where there were all of these sort of geometric forms hanging in space, and there was a sound in the air, like like when the meditation bell has been struck. This like, ting, and sort of orienting in this space, um, and across my vision, in a kind of solarized flash, appeared. a a vision of the Egyptian deity set, uh, you know, the sort of the God of outsiders and, and storms and, you know, uh, non-standard sexual practices and the desert. Um, This was, this was revealed to me. And and right as soon as that happened, you know, uh, I heard my therapist's voice calling me back and she's saying, okay, we're going to bring this experience to a close, and start to count you back up. and, you know, and so, and it was interesting how it was timed perfectly like that, like right when this thing was revealed to me, um, she began to call me back. And so, I mean, this is really interesting because I, I remember this, I do a lot of conventional psychotherapy in my practice now, but I, I always remember that that it can, you know, uh, uh, at any moment become straight up shamanistic, you know, and not shamanistic in the culturally appropriate sense, but Shamanistic in the sense that, like, we're talking about a, a sort of a deep structure within humanity of of the ability tra- to to travel using your mind alone and to be shown things that that change you. So I came back and 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 I, you know, you know, I didn't know what to make of it. It was so weird and it also felt not entirely real. Um, and in working with it later, I. You know, we worked with it for a number of sessions afterwards, and she and I talked a lot about how uh, d- different things that it did, things that it did to time. Um, well, actually, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this in a little bit. So, uh, uh, but because because we're sort of getting to the end of the story here, which is that two weeks later, I was working for the County of San Francisco in a, in a clinic of theirs, um, doing social work, and I had just dropped off a. A client at uh this um place ward 93 which is the uh um methadone clinic at the hospital in san francisco and i just dropped him off and i was driving back driving a county vehicle driving a big white van across san francisco and i remember thinking at that moment about how uh i was having a, a moment where i was thinking about you know technology and its how it sort of fragments consciousness and is exhausting. And I, uh, I, I, I was thinking, oh yeah, like I need to meditate more. And I remember that moment I looked into the sky and I saw at that point, a huge black triangular craft floating over San Francisco. And I saw it, I mean, it was probably the size of a bus, um, but a different shape of course. And it was interesting because it was hyper real, you know, for all of the, For all of the vagueness of the inner hypnosis experience and the the sort of recovered night of missing time, this had absolute solidity. You know, it's like when you see a, if you know, if you go to, there's places you can go, uh, you know, like at LAX, you know, um, sort of on the west side of LA, and you can watch the planes land very close. And you can see the sort of this, the, the subtle shading, you know, on the fuselage, and you can see, the rivets in the metal, and you can see the seams where it's been welded together, and you can, you know, see people looking out the windows. This had that level of detail. Um, so it was interesting because the inner experience had a certain kind of impressionistic quality, but this had absolute material solidity. And I, you know, was in a moving car when I saw it, and I kept my eyes on it as as much as I could while trying to stay safe. But then a, a building passed between me and the craft and so i did you know what you're never supposed to do as a as a county employee uh i i put the car into reverse and i reversed through a red light to see if i could see it again because i was so gobsmacked by what i had seen and it was very clear to me in that moment that this had to do with the hypnosis experience and the night of missing time they were like be all uh, different beads on the same string and um so I went back. I backed into the intersection. It was gone. And uh, but it, it felt very much like a, 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 a wink, uh, an acknowledgement, a kind of a capstone to this whole inner journey that I've been on, um, and uh, that, uh, and one that felt very much like you know we can do we can do the the inner the imaginal. And we can also do the outer, you know, we're, we, we are, we are conversant in both styles and, um, and we're very real. And so in working with this whole experience with my therapist, you know, who luckily had a lot of experience, because I mean, here's the thing for many, many people who tell you about an experience like this, it's like, uh, or sorry, sorry, many, many people who you'll tell about an experience like this, they'll say, okay, you're fucking crazy. Um, and But I, as a therapist now, I have people coming to me with these experiences via psychedelics or or other means, and I think having had them, you know, I I understand that, you know, I don't need to, diagnostically speak and go to the uh, realm of psychotic disorders to explain this stuff. I think of it more as, um, you know, a deeply human experience. So um, in working with it in therapy, I realized that in that moment where I was shown the mask and the gray alien head that I was being um, I was being given a kind of a key to the experience that 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 what I was being shown was a mask for something, and that I wasn't being shown the exact thing, and uh, that that I was dealing with with masks there, so masks for some kind of energy. So I really valued that because it kept me from interpreting that experience too literally and getting too hung up on any of the specific forms. Um, and, uh, I should also say that when I was, had that experience of having the flashing mask and the gray alien face, the line from the Kenneth Grant poem, uh, uh, or it was a dedication from one of his books of poems, uh, came through my head, uh, which was the endlessly dissolving face behind the yellow mask. So, so, you know, I, so if you, if you look back to the you know, the, the night of missing time at that point in my life, I hadn't seen Twin Peaks. I had never read Kenneth Grant. Um, I knew about star Wars, but what it really seems to me was that, um, these, these beings or energies or whatever you want to call them, reached into my own personal private symbol set, and then used that to populate the experience with, with, uh, you know with characters and forms that i would recognize and that would give me a kind of experience and that but, but then again it also made me feel like time is perhaps something that flows forward and backwards or it's somehow plastic or bendable and that i could have somehow perhaps known about those things precognitively when i was 19 before i had encountered them so, so there's a lot of questions there a lot of questions about how this step works but i think that the, the the idea of looking at this experience as kind of masks um uh uh i think that it it helps me to to not get to, to go totally crazy with it because really i mean what this experience did was it, it completely detonated my sense of materialist reality i mean that was done at that point you know i I mean i went much more into a quantum or animistic model after that of like uh realizing that i that that we do live in a haunted universe and that um you know it's not hard flat and static it's it's dancing with life at, at any moment um and that and that time has its own kind of inner life too. And that maybe it's not a simple one-way flowing thing, but maybe it is something that goes backwards and forwards too. So that's that experience. It was really big. I'm glad I had uh, uh, competent people to, because I had a close friend who had had experiences like these too. And and since then I've talked to him about this a lot. And uh, that helped me to feel you know, sane during this process, and to and to integrate it to the point where I mean, it's one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. And um, you know, uh, this is the first time I've talked about it publicly. I, I kept it private for a long time because I didn't want to dilute it. Um, but at the same time, I feel like uh, there's something important about being honest about these things too, because they, um, you know. I think that depending on how you work with them, they can either harm us or they can uh, encourage us to grow.
0: No, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something too I kind of backed away from sharing my experiences with the uh you know the psychedelics as well for a long time but uh it just it seemed like you know that was a story that a lot of people always enjoyed hearing and um also that you know how I got into this I mean I do kind of feel like uh moving into this new era we're all kind of finding out that everybody's had a lot of these weird experiences they're not as uncommon and um Right. I mean, it can be you know very useful just hearing other people's odd experiences in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what you know. This is what you know. Uh, Charles Fort talked about as the the dominant of wider inclusion. You know, it's like it's like this 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 frame. You know, where we're sort of moving into a time when there's a frame that that has a lot of room for it uh, for 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 anomalous or unexplained phenomena or yeah, extra physical uh, experiences. So. You know, the, the thing that i left pondering is you know why the deity set I mean, now I'll, I'll say this is that you know my sense of spirituality has always ever since i was a little kid has always had a kind of nightside flavor to it which you know doesn't have anything to do with the evil but it also it, it does have to do with perhaps uh, darker realities and um and you know you know like the dark in terms of a place that germinates things and and the dark you know, as the sort of the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, my my inner spiritual landscape feels more lit by moonlight and starlight than by sunlight. So it it feels in a way continuous with that. Um, And and, uh, I know that sort of freaks some people out, but I'm at peace with it, because I feel like this is just who I am. And uh, it's also part and parcel of my role as a psychotherapist, which I, I feel like oftentimes is a as a kind of psychopomp to lead people into their own um, sort of like hidden and forbidden spaces to, to do work there in order to to heal and to come to terms with things.
0: No, absolutely.
1: Well, yeah. um,
0: I take it also you've experimented with different types of magical workings over the years as well. Yeah. I know you mentioned a telepathic experience you had with the Golden Dawn group. So what was that about?
1: You know, I, I was the neophyte. I was a neophyte in a Golden Dawn group in, uh, many years ago, and and you know, it, as a neophyte, you 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 will uh, choose the new password to the lodge, and um, you know, it happened, I think, two times in a row where I driving to the lodge room, uh, guessed the word. The word came into my head, you know, so. Uh, I won't say the word, but like, let's say, um, let's say, you know, because because we, we would select the word at random that night um, by by doing biblio by pointing at a page of a book at random. And I I would have the word float through my head, you know, on the way to the laundry room and be like, it's going to be this word. And then I'd be like, no, no, of course not. Like, I mean, no, it's not going to be that. And then I get there and I'd be putting my head on the, the book and there would be the word the word that i had thought it would be that happened two times in a row um which was you know stunning but at the same time you get around people who are doing deep inner work like that and they're like of course that's that's how this works you know like so not not at all surprised with that you know that kind of above average hit rate or uncanny hit rate for uh telepathic experience or or uh you know you know precognition But I, um, yeah, so that was the only order that I was involved with. I'm, I'm not much of a joiner, but that was a time in the Bay Area when I just, I felt drawn to this one specific group, and I was with them for a couple of years, um, and had, again, you know, pretty extraordinary synchronistic experiences with things that would happen in my life, and then would be reflected in ritual, you know, uh, ritual that had been written out, you know, ahead of time. Um so so yeah, that was a profound thing. But but ultimately, I think uh, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier, which is that I um, I think I'm more interested in my own intuitive path and and a path that involves creating art and a path that involves uh, working with the excuse me with the uh, the energies that show up in my life and oftentimes that has to do with uh, place. You know, I, I like. For instance, Rupus, I'm really interested in your explorations of place and how they can almost be like living tarot cards with uh energies to share with you if you just go and gaze upon them or or sit sit in those in those uh places
0: no absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I certainly uh identify too with not really being much of a joiner. I um, I always think that a lot of times this stuff works better when you uh take more of a personal take on it, absolutely personal yeah. journey, if you will.
1: Couldn't agree more, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it was the one thing I really loved about being part of an order when I was for that little for that brief time was that I loved the community, you know, I loved meeting other uh magically operated people and uh. And, you know, and, and, and people where you didn't have to kind of qualify discussions. There was just an understanding that the, the world works in a certain way. And, um, and uh, so I really like that. I like the community aspect of it. But in terms of how those energies actually show up in my life, I think that, yeah, the, the, the solo path or the kind of consulting with other, uh, you know, consulting with friends and then kind of using that to inform your practice uh you know in a kind of more intuitive way that that's been much more uh fruitful and unique to me.
0: Okay, so let's see. Um all right so you also had some experiences with divination and sigil magic. So what was that like?
1: Well I'll just say this. You know, I don't I don't go to oracles very often. You know, I mean like I I had uh, Starting when I was, I think, 18 or 19, I had a reading from Antero Ali, who, you know, he did stuff with, I think, Timothy Larry back in the day. but I was, you know, living in Berkeley at the time, and he had this cool old house there, and I went to get some astrological readings from him. Um, Actually, I heard that he's dying now. He has cancer, Um, or maybe he's already died, but he'll only give you astrological readings three times in your life um, because he doesn't want to create dependency on it, so... I had two from him, and I was going to get a third. I always wanted to get a fourth because he used some of my music in one of my one of his movies without my without my permission, which I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't really pissed off about. It, but I, I thought I would at least try to get some, get a fourth reading out of him. But I, I, I may not even get a third. But I, I really liked him. He really gave me incredible insight. But there was something about him saying you can only get three in the course of a lifetime that it kind of set a tone and a pace for how often i go to the oracle. Uh, or go to oracles of different kinds because whenever I do I get uncannily specific magic whether that's or sorry specific uh, information which uh, whether that's a tarot reading or visiting an astrologer um, or uh, having put something into a sigil in, in order for it to manifest so um, so whenever I've done that it's been incredibly powerful like I, I haven't ever, put something into a sigil and not had it work. Um, but for some reason I have this strong instinct instinct not to do it all the time. And I don't know why that is, but it's a strong enough instinct that I I just I respect it and I, and I follow that. But also I, I know that if I really need to you know, roll my sleeves up and nudge reality in a specific direction uh, that that uh, sigil magic, other types of in, in, intense intention, intentional work, you know, sex magic, um that kind of stuff can be incredibly powerful um, and it's you know I, I i trust it you know so oracle sigil sigil magic uh, divination i've done it by various means i'm not a master of any i'm pretty you know i stay pretty naive with this stuff and and you know i, I will consul- consult consult uh, right or wait white book you know uh, as to what the tarot cards meaning uh, mean because i sometimes forget uh, what, what they you know what, what all their specific meanings are but, you know, almost every time um, it's like uh, gives me good information and good actionable information, not like nice psychological readings, but, but more kind of like you need to do this, you know, and um, I, I followed that. So I, I just have kind of a trust in that process and uh, it's been super helpful. And uh, I, I save it more for like times where, um, yeah, where I need it rather than want it. Thank you.
2: shaking and it's just got dark lines all in a row you get the same old feeling every time you step over the line you get the same old feeling when you roll across the rolling you get the same old feeling When you roll across the Mason-Dixon line Go back to Cherry Hill You got no money, you got no place to go
0: Let's uh, start getting into your day job a bit here. So first off, can you unpack uh, psychedelic therapy for us?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I went through one of the first, I was in the second cohort of clinicians graduated from the first ever like large scale psychedelic therapy, uh, uh, psychedelic psychotherapy training programs. And so that's the one at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And the program is called, I think it's the Certificate in Psychedelic Therapies and Research, so CPTR. And um, that was in 2017. I, I tried to get in 20, the 2016 cohort, but I was just an intern therapist at that point. I had nothing distinguishing me, me from all these other sort of like Harvard graduate, you know, people with these, you know, very decorated resumes. I was sort of like, I showed up. I was like, hey, I'm nobody, but uh, I'm going to keep applying until you let me in. So they let me in. They made a special provision for me as an intern the next year, and they let me in, and I went through that, and that was good. I mean, what I got to do is I got to train with a bunch of the OG uh, clinicians who helped develop psychedelic therapy. So I got to study with uh, Ralph Metzner. Uh, My my mentor was Maria Vittoria Mangini, who uh, is an old school. uh, She she's a um, you know comes out of the scene in San Francisco of like the Diggers and the Grateful Dead. She she did sound for the Grateful Dead for a while. And I got to study with Stan Groff too. And I I had a moment with Stan Groff that was really significant where he basically told me, you know, like, I I need you to do, I need you to study and develop this stuff because no one else is doing it. And that had to do with music. So, so that was a really profound thing to get to know people. And and I think that like, that's one of the main main benefits of education is getting to go just be in the room with people who are doing interesting things. So. So I, I, I did, I did that. Um, I had a, a lot of psychedelic experience as a teenager and and, and some of those, those were really, um, you know, uh, as you'd imagine with a, a teenage kid who's into punk music, you know, those were oftentimes pretty irresponsible and they were either like just radiantly blissful or horrifically uh, difficult. Um, so You know, as I've moved on and gotten older, I'm a lot gentler on myself. I don't don't necessarily need to have this kind of hair-raising, dangling over the abyss experiences anymore. But um, you know, psychedelic therapy is actually pretty simple, and the the you know, it's it's oftentimes stepping back and letting the process take place uh, with minimal interference. You know, so I think people will think like, "Oh, are you are you talking to someone while they're doing this? You're kind of making they're tripping, and you're talking to them." It's really allowing them to have a uh, an inner experience with an eye shade on, listening to music for pretty much the duration of the the drug experience, and and then the, the, the sort of the more meaningful therapy happens on the front end and the back end. So you do preparation sessions where you do psychoeducation. You know, if someone's never taken any drug before, let alone a psychedelic. You you'll have to explain things to them. Like this is going to be very different from anything that you've ever experienced. Um, you know, you, you may experience ego death. You may experience a kind of merging with visual and musical phenomena that that, that you've never experienced before. You may experience contact with things that seem like entities, too. Um, you may experience uh, uh, I- imagery from spiritual traditions that you have no background in. You know, so, so there's a lot of education to, to do. And then also there's the kind of Um, you know, if you're looking at it in a strictly therapy frame, it's like, you know, sort of looking at it in terms of the diagnosis that qualified them for therapy, because this, you know, has to meet what we call medical necessity. So there's that. And then there is, um, you know, figuring out what the person's goals are, uh, figuring out what their goals are, and formulating those into intentions, intentions for healing or getting information. Um, And there's different ways to do that. So, and then on the on the back end of the experience after they've had the, the psychedelic uh, uh, therapy experience there is um, making sense of it sort of the meaning making process and the meaning making process involves you know kind of like uh, oftentimes figuring out you know what the experience meant but then how to stay how to stay connected to it you know are there ways that you can live that that keep you connected to uh, uh, or, or practices that you can do that can keep you connected to the, these really deeply wise personal insights from the psychedelic state. So, I mean, that's what, that's a real sort of thumbnail uh, of what psychedelic therapy uh, looks like. And um, I'm a believer in it because built into, uh, baked into the, the, the ethos of psychedelic therapy is the belief that um, that people have everything within themselves that they need to heal. And I, I, I like that. And I think that that's actually how all healing healing happens. You know, you don't go to the doctor with a broken arm and the doctor heals your arm. The doctor helps to create the, the correct conditions for self-healing to happen. So they might set the bone and put it, put it in the cast. Um, and, but, but then the, the, the actual healing is something that you do for yourself. So, so that's sort of fundamental to the, to the ethos of psychedelic therapy is that all healing is self-healing. So uh, and that's and that the, the relationship with the therapist, the psychedelic experience, the cre- creation of the container, you know the preparation, the integration, the creation of meaning out of these experiences, these are all uh, these are all parts of creating the correct con- conditions for healing. And um, there's so so that's yeah that is part of psychedelic healing that that I you know I, I mean it just it, it 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 jives with my sense of how healing works. And also, it, it, it changes something about the Western medical model, which is the idea that you know, healing is something that's sort of gate gatekept by this sort of class of you know, uh, priestly doctors who will heal you, you know, if you pay them. Uh, this is more the idea that y- you do it for yourself. And, um, you know, I think that w- w- me- the, the medical establishment is rapidly trying to figure out ways to, you know, monetize this. And to you know put little tweaks on all the molecules to and then claim that they have more efficacy, um, but then make it patentable so so that you have to you know uh, pay more money for it or that no one else can make it. Um, while figuring out ways to make medications that you take long term, you know, I'm really not interested in that. Um, and, and, I, and I and I like to think that I would you know make efforts to resist that if that's the way that the field goes. But for the time being, you know, uh, I think it's very promising. Uh, sort of archaic return of something, again, that's very old, a very old part of, you know, the human psyche and and soul that is coming back and something that right now is particularly, uh, particularly we're in desperate need of. All
0: right. Well, how, um, well, let's get into the main event here, uh, ketamine. So when did you first become aware of ketamine therapy specifically?
1: You know, I became aware of ketamine because part of the training program I went through was that there was this belief that psilocybin and MDMA would be legal in two years. And before I went into the program, they said, oh, it should be legal in two years. And then in the program, they said, should be legal in two years. And then after I graduated, they said, oh, it should be legal in two years. And then I checked back in with that, uh, you know, with my cohort and they'd be like, oh, it should be legal in two years. And, And it keeps getting pushed off. Now, I do believe that MDMA and psilocybin will probably be made legal in the course of our lifetimes and probably actually not too far off down the timeline. But in the meantime, I started hearing more and more about how ketamine was being used uh, for psychedelic therapy. Now, now, now ketamine is an anesthetic and it's, um, you know, like if you break your leg on a skiing trip, they'll give you a big dose of ketamine, a big injection to, to get you into the helicopter, to get you to the hospital. So, uh, that's its primary use is as a kind of an emergency anesthetic, because it's very safe, you know, uh, hard to overdose on. And if you take a large dose to, to, to have a full sort of almost like general anesthesia experience, uh, it doesn't have the concerns about depressing breathing that like a high dose of opiates would. So it's a safe, uh, you know, safe anesthetic. They use it with, you know, in pediatric medicine with children a lot. Um, but what they found was that in lower doses, people started having these antidepressant effects. Like people who had gotten anesthesia would be like, you know, my depression is much better. And so they started collecting information on that, and it, they ended up using it as a kind of what they call an off-label designation, meaning that ketamine is legal and approved. For use as an anesthetic, but they are beginning to use it off-label. They've, they've, enough doctors have observed that you know that it has these other effects, um, so they'll begin. So they began using it for mental health, and within a specific dosage range, ketamine is a full-on psychedelic and, and a profound psychedelic. So that's what got me interested in it. And um, I, I initially thought of it. I thought, okay, well, this is a compromise. You know, it's not you know the sort of the Northern California hippie in me was thinking well it's not natural so that's not as good as psilocybin mushrooms but uh, then you know I, I, I went through a ketamine training program that involved getting intramuscular ketamine and then I eventually had it prescribed and had a number of ketamine experiences that were uh, super helpful to me I mean super helpful uh, in a variety of ways um, and in ways that I didn't even expect that it would be helpful so um, I moved from thinking of it as a kind of a Kind of a you know a, a stopgap or a, a kind of a a way to, to 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 do psychedelic therapy in the meantime while we're waiting for legalization of these other psychedelic molecules, uh, and then I eventually moved towards thinking like oh this is a profoundly powerful medicine, and I began working with it with my patients and realizing and then seeing them have real breakthroughs. You know breakthroughs in the way that they lived and thought and behaved moment to moment, um, and you know this is something that people have said. You know, it's like is that it can really feel like years of psychotherapy in one day, and I've seen that happen, and it's incredibly, you know, it's awe-inspiring. Uh, and um, so, so at this point, I really, I really honor ketamine as a as a really deep medicine. I think for those who've had a lot of really hardcore experience with the classical psychedelics uh, uh ketamine can feel comparatively very gentle you know because it kind of creates this first this anesthetic bubble this kind of soft you know uh cushioned bubble and then the insights the psychedelic insights inf- uh, unfold within that bubble that's really sort of the experience as, as, as I know it so it's it doesn't have the sort of the same raw feeling of having the Uh, security blanket ripped away that uh, other psychedelic experiences can have. So uh, I found that as I get older, that's really nice. You know, like I I don't necessarily need to have my ass just completely kicked by a psychedelic uh, in order to have some good from it. Uh, And another thing is that it's a shorter experience. Ketamine can be anywhere depending on how much you take. And if you take a booster dose, it can be, um, you know, an hour to two. Uh, in and out. So it's a, you know, I say it's a better work day for everyone compared to psilocybin, which is, you know, four to six hours. LSD, you know, uh, typically about 12 hours, but for a sensitive person, up to 15. So um, I think uh, ketamine is a a good medicine. I'm I'm interested in the other psychedelic medicines as they become available for psychedelic therapy, but for the time being, ketamine is really the one legal option. And thankfully, I feel like it's I don't feel like it's one that compromises on quality. I feel like it's, a. Uh, I uh, I feel like it's really, really powerful and potentially helpful to, to the right people.
0: How does your approach to uh, therapy, because I know you use a uh, music a lot with it. How does it uh, differ from a conventional um, approach to psychedelic therapy?
1: Yeah. So, so the, the, the ketamine clinic that we run, it's like a, uh, it's, it's online so it's all that is administered remotely so that's that's one thing that's the ketamine providers network uh we've been in the process th- this developing our own approach this is uh, my my colleague Dr uh, Mark short and I we've been in the process of developing our own cutting edge psychedelic therapy and really it's one that uses more music at, at all the phases of psychedelic treatment so we talked about the preparation phase the actual, uh, trip experience and then the integration phase you know typically the prep and integration involve a lot of verbal processing maybe some somatic work you know what we're leveraging in those experiences is, is music we're, we're using music to help people prepare music to support the actual psychedelic experience and then music to help them to integrate the experience so the music the way we use it during the preparation phase and, and this is what we're calling um uh, music-centered psychedelic integration, uh, or MCPI for short. So, with music-centered psychedelic integration, during the preparation phase, we do deep listening. So, we'll do a certain amount of, uh, you know, verbal preparation, psychoeducation, all these other things that we have to do. I mean, you know, we have to do a really thoughtful intake, and uh, you know, we do what we call a musical intake too, which is really a big, long conversation about someone's musical taste, so that we. You know, don't play them anything that's going to really be aversive to them, but we also want to make sure we're not playing them stuff that they're familiar with, because music that is, uh, that someone hasn't encountered before or heard before, in, the, in a psychedelic experience, they're going to experience that as uh, exploring, uh, you know, that's experientially, uh, uh, how do I say this? They, they experience that music as leading them into parts of themselves that are unfamiliar. So, so it's really important to have lots of music and to, to constantly find new music to use in this work because you don't want to just be listening to the same stuff you've always listened to. Um, so in the integra- so in the preparation phase, we will do deep listening. And what we found is that deep listening before the drug, drug experience, it really helps to familiarize the person with the patient or with, with, the, with the, the process of um, going within and letting the music guide them. You know, and so it it helps the experience not be so alien because I don't think many people in the course of their life have put on an eye mask and headphones and listened to music deeply for two hours. You know, most people don't do that. Some people do. You know, I've done some of that, um, especially, you know, like smoking cannabis when I was younger. But um, so it, it prepares them for that. It kind of gives them a sense. And I think that that can lessen the anxiety going into the actual drug experience. It also, what people find when they do that is that stuff emerges. Uh, things emerge, they'll, they might have sort of light visionary experiences, they might have memories, they might have strong emotional experiences, and we found that that can really, in turn, help to inform the process of setting goals and intentions. And so, um, uh, at that phase, you know, and then there's other things. We've developed what we call an integrative listening practices. So, uh, and then there's the, the, the trip, which looks very similar to a standard psychedelic psychotherapy trip, you know, listening to music for the entire time. And then the integration, this is a really powerful mechanism. Uh, we call it integrative re-listening. So because ketamine is only, you know, an hour to two hours, the experience, that's something that in the course of the integration session, you can easily re-listen to the entire playlist. And we found that, you know, I think this is something that many psychedelic Users or experimenters notice, which is that if you listen to a music to, to a piece of music in a deep psychedelic state, um, and then go back to it later and listen to that song, that piece of music is has a, an uncanny charge, and you listen to it, and you might get full body chills, and you remember the visions of that experience, and it, it sort of brings you back into that psychedelic experience. Now, this is the exact mechanism that, that people are looking for when they're talking about psychedelic integration, which is how to stay connected to that uh, to, to the to the actual psychedelic experience. So, you know, we found that if you do it with the music, we, we we're of the, the opinion that this is the most powerful way to do this. And um that through through re listening and then repeated listening. Um, so uh yeah we call that integrative re-listening. And um so ultimately, I mean, and there's other listening practices, you know, we're in the process of taking private clients and starting some groups here in LA and have a workshop that we're working on putting together in New York. So um, really music-centered psychedelic integration is is, you know, you might think that initially people who are really, you know, sort of like music heads or really musically preoccupied would be drawn to this, but it, it is um You know, uh, we're finding that everyone who undergoes it responds to it really well and finds it as an incredibly powerful way to have psychedelic experiences. Um, So it still has some verbal processing, but it leans a lot more heavily on music. And um, we're really interested in, you know, uh, having very well curated taste, lots of good options for people, um, and then having super high quality audio equipment. So we're in the process of uh, getting a couple... Sort of extraordinarily uh, special stereo systems to play for people um but yeah that's music centered psychedelic integration it's it's our new therapy uh you know you've we, got a, a site and you can there's a um, you know you can buy tickets there for workshops so uh, we're, we're in the process of rolling that out right now it's very exciting we're also working on a book too describing the therapy
0: what i mean in essence is the difference between ketamine therapy and recreational use of it
1: well You know, I mean, I think that when people tend to use drugs recreationally, what I hear most about from them is that they take it at a party or they take it with friends and they have a kind of extroverted experience, right? So they might be, you know, uh, sort of enjoying the sort of the visual, you know, distortions that are happening or, or the sort of the changes in perception, or they might be giggling or laughing or cuddling or... Um, having sex or, you know, going on a hike, you know, I mean, that's sort of a, where I grew up in Northern California. That was a classic, you know, take mushrooms and go for a hike. Um, so, uh, so, so I think that those are all examples of sort of like in general, you know, uh, I think it's fine for people to do that. You know, it's like, I mean, there's traditions of people doing that. Um but it's different, you know, it's different from the work we're talking about doing, which is, you know, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a medical psychotherapeutic protocol that is a big step closer to shamanism, you know, which is eyes closed, having an introverted experience and really using the uh, the medicine to dive within. And and if you're and, and people will ask, how do I do that? How do I do that? You know, um, really. uh it, you know, there, there's a mantra I was taught in the training program. It "Trust, let go, and be open." And I would add to that, and then just listen to the music. I mean, listening to the music is kind of your only job in psychedelic therapy because that evokes everything. It takes you to new places. Um, it it uh, you know it conjures up memories. It, it 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 becomes the sort of the 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 river that you flow down is uh, the, the, the musical experience. So, you know, in general when I've administered psychedelic therapy, you know, like ketamine therapy to people who've taken ketamine recreationally, they'll come out of the first session and, you know, be like, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea what this drug could actually do. Um, and I think that, uh, that that often happens with, with uh, you, know, you know, I think sometimes people will have a lot of experience using psychedelics for a very specific thing, which is like a more communal experience with other people or a more external experience connecting with nature or something like that. Um, in, in these experiences, you're, you're moving in sort of like frictionless or maybe sometimes, you know, high friction uh, inner space, mental space. And uh, that is a completely different experience. And um, I, I, in general, many people who once they experience that tend to not go back to the extroverted experiences tends to not go back to the Uh, experiences of using psychedelics to party they tend to say oh i i was mistaken like this is kind of a a sacrament or something like that that i need to really respect and do under very specific conditions with people who i trust and do for very specific reasons because they realize that ultimately it's a kind of work you know like doing you know doing psychedelic work is is a kind of deep profound inner work that takes a kind of uh respect for the medicine in the process
0: what actually uh, made you want to get into the ketamine therapy business?
1: You know, around that time when I worked with that, you know, that profound UFO contact experience, I had this strong hunger to get into. You know, you know, I had you know sort of more naive teenage psychedelic experiences, and but I had this very strong, like pit of the stomach hunger to have more of these experiences, and that was at this time in the Bay Area. I mean, the Bay Area really does seem, San Francisco Bay Area seems to be the, the kind of the epicenter for this stuff, you know, for, for, for psychedelic culture and psychedelic therapy and, you know, people who are making, having radical new visions of drug policy. So, um, you know, that happened in this milieu of people, you know, I was in grad school, doing a therapy degree, and I started just meeting person after person who was interested in psychedelic work. And so... It, it, you know, it, it, it was interesting. Like, it, it showed me a path that this could unfold on for me, you know. That, um, you know, that that helped me to make sense of it. That gave me a place within it, and, and that also like built a good, strong container around it where I could stay safe and uh, have these experiences, and then ultimately facilitate them for other people. But, but with some guardrails, on, you know. Because I I do know people who've you know uh, smashed through the guardrails with psychedelics, taking them, you know, to to taking too, way too high of doses, taking them too often, not preparing, not doing adequate integration. So you know I don't ever want to you know come off as too like messianic about this stuff and 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 pretend like there aren't consequences for misusing them. I think there's really potentially big consequences. You know, psychedelics kind of just open people up to do. Uh w- work, but they can also open someone up like a surgical procedure. And if you don't know what you're doing, it's like that's potentially dangerous. You know, I, I've had friends who have been changed for the worse and many changed for the better. But then again, I think that the real difference between that is having a having a good culture around it, having a good container around it, having trusted relationships, having uh lots of sort of collective wisdom around you about how to work with these things. Um and I think that in general, if someone has those things, they could, these, these experiences can be incredibly uh, beneficial and, 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 you know, profitable to, to, you know, you know, personal growth. So, yeah, I, I got into it, you know, it was just, it was an intuitive thing, you know, and and I, I had, you know, I I mean, I, I think back, it's like, if, if, as a teenager, I could look at myself having a sort of split career as a, as a musician and a writer and a psychedelic therapist like i i, I feel really lucky you know I feel, I feel really lucky to have crafted that for myself but it, it, it did involve a lot of hard work and a real commitment to not let any one of those things drop but to kind of continually develop these different parts of myself the the, the you know the, the cost of that is that i'm always busy like i don't i am you know always working on one thing or another whether it's a recording project or you know, a uh, uh, piece of writing or collaboration. Um, and then I do clinical work and then building these businesses, these psychedelic, uh, psychedelic wellness businesses that I'm in the process of launching right now.
0: Yeah. I can certainly relate to how this stuff definitely seems to keep you busy. Um, so I guess to wrap up here, uh, what uh, is your take on a figure like Peter Thiel uh, investing heavily in ketamine therapy? Is this something that we should be concerned about?
1: Uh, yes, I think we should be concerned about that because I think that there's something about there's something about um, how these medicines are being mainstreamed. That I think, like like everything's a yin yang, right? Like in in terms of it having a a, a top side and a bottom side, you <laughs> know, there's two sides to this coin. And one is that I think that you know uh, we have a, a, a possibility here to to create a, a, a very democratic culture around these medicines that that you know is very inclusive and accessible and non-hierarchical and but of course you know the the sort of the 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 the, uh the the powers that be sense the power of these medicines and want to domesticate it and sort of put it put it under the yoke of making money and you know like i don't have any problem with with commerce but there's something about uh what they're trying to do like I, i mentioned earlier uh trying to Put proprietary tweaks on all the molecules, you know, changing the molecular structure, in order to patent them. Like that, somehow, is deeply offensive to me. Um, uh, so, so I, I am concerned about that. I'm, I am concerned about, you know, it's kind of like reminds me of the sort of the Amazon, Amazon pods that they're talking about for Amazon workers, where they, you know, they're like, oh, it's, it's all about mindfulness and wellness. You go sit in this pod and meditate for an hour, so that you can. You know, go back to work in a non-unionized uh, uh, sort of workspace, and you know, give us more hours of work, and and, and you know, uh, well, yeah, while well, we extract more value out of you. So, I, I feel like um, it's inevitable that that's, that, that there's going to be efforts made to try and do that with psychedelics, and I think that you know we need to resist that. I mean, there's something that's wonderful about psilocybin mushrooms is that they grow wild. I think, on every continent where people are, right? And they're uh, easy to cultivate. So, so, I mean, I'm not advocating that, but, you know, if you listen to someone like Kalindi E.G., e., he's like, this is the medicine of the people. It belongs to us. And, um, and, and, and I, I sympathize with that because I, I think that we have profound problems with our medical system right now. And so, in order, and so if, if the, the medical sort of powers that be are looking at it and saying, oh, we want to we wanna bring it over to our side, you know, I mean, I'm extremely skeptical of that, even though I participate in that to some extent. Um, but, but I, I also think that th- these are really um, matters for 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 drug policy. I, I'm really enthusiastic about decriminalization movements like what's happened in, in Oregon and in Alameda County, um, because that allows a certain amount of uh, legal access and, and work to happen with psychedelics in a kind of a legal gray zone, which I think can can almost be like a you know like a little kind of hakim bay style uh, uh temporary autonomous zone where where you know stuff can happen so so I, I think that that's that's good um but i think in general i think that like with with big money investment uh there's that that inevitable extractive mentality and and i'm i'm worried about that and i think that uh you know um i'm not quite sure what to do about it but uh you know I, I guess we'll sort of see what happens you know i, I do i do think you know I, i've always worked in um i'll say this i've always worked in like low fee or community mental health settings you know i mean i maintain spots in my practice now for people who can't afford to pay for therapy so i think access is really important you know and that's it's another problem so It's another problem that psychotherapy has is it's too expensive most people can't afford it or if their insurance covers it, most therapists don't take it. So that's something that needs to change. And, and I, I really do strive to, to make therapy accessible to people in, in my life now. Like I, I do accept insurance. Um, I have certain low fee, no fee slots. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of work for, you know, for, for poor people in the, in the past. And, and I'm sure I'll continue doing that in the future. So I think that as, you know, psychedelic medicine continues to be built out and mainstreamed, we need to figure out to get it to the pe- how to get it to the people who need it the most, which are you know ultimately uh, you know you know lower socioeconomic people who, who absorb more trauma than other people uh, in our society.
0: No, yeah, absolutely, and that's a, a very valid point. <laughs> well, sir, it has been a fascinating conversation here. Um, do you have any uh, closing thoughts here
1: before we wrap up? So I'm on Instagram. My handle there is Baldwin Unlimited. And then for information on our ketamine clinic, you can go to ketamineprovidersnetwork.com. And then if you want to find out more about music centered psychedelic integration, which is our cutting edge psychedelic therapy we're developing, that is at music centered.org. And then there's uh, my musical website where it has uh, LPs, cassettes, and zines. That is psychicarts.bandcamp.com. I, it's such a uh, such a pleasure to be here. You know, I, I listen to the fund every week. I, I'm, a, I'm a paid s- subscriber, and uh, I, I just I really admire you, Stephen. I think you're you're such an outsider that you're the consummate insider. So um, I, I just. Uh, I'm excited to, to, to be here and to share what I do. And uh, I think the farm is one of the best podcasts out there.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much, Matt. And uh, it's definitely a pleasure to have you on here and uh, finally to speak with you too. And absolutely, uh, hopefully one of these days I can make it out to uh, LA here, hopefully sooner than later and, uh, and hang out in person or something.
1: Oh yeah. We'll, we'll show you a good time for sure. If you do.
0: Well, all right. On that note, then, I will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening with that. uh, Good night and good luck to you all.
2: As they are, we'll always change upon the blue guitar. We take advice from a Amish tar. A million people on one string, and all their thoughts are just one thing. Neo-pagans in a shiny car. voice Say you don't have a choice But to play your sadness on a blue guitar A tune beyond us as we are Coming through upon the blue guitar And Neo Piggins with a six-rate star On a blue guitar, things as they are, are rearranging in the blue and tar. I took a chance with a Disney star. Ring a bell, throw my papers in connect and they're so glad that they could meet with all my friends in a CD bar I heard